The opening section of Martin Luther's open letter to the Christian nobility was an effective broadside against the Roman Catholic power structure. It outlined a biblical argument that elevated both the nobility and the common man to stand equal to both priest and pope in the eyes of God. But Luther wasn't done. The open letter also outlined Luther's calls to reform the church, from how people should dress, to ceremonial changes, to how people could understand that the Pope was just a man like everyone else. The open letter was very effective. Before the release of the open letter, the pressure was building on Frederick the Wise to turn Luther over to the Roman authorities. The success of the open letter allowed Frederick to continue to protect Luther through this critical period of the Reformation. I'm Mike Yeagley. And I'm Evan Gertner. And this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to a review of the history and contents of documents of the Lutheran Reformation, all over a nice cold beer. So, after posting, we're going to do a little bit of background here. And the, the before we start, I think it's important to sort of give everybody a little bit of a trigger warning. Uh, the, this podcast, this particular episode, along with the next couple that we're going to be having, are going to have a lot of theological content. And we're going to be covering a lot of the, theological grounds. For those folks who are just interested in the history of the Lutheran Reformation, you know, just like I said, a little bit of a trigger warning, but you know, we think this is an important part of the of the whole story. I right? think if you're listening to this podcast, you can handle this episode. <laughs> okay. After posting of the 95 Theses, there's a couple of years where Luther worked very hard to make his position clear. He was not seeking to be sectarian or divisive or to separate the church. He was seeking reform. At its core, Lutheran Luther's position was that he thought there should be a reform of the church based on the Bible, and that all teachings that could not be backed up with the Bible should be purged. This was especially true for some of the scholastic theology, which Luther found to be used to create teachings that were against clear biblical teaching. Now, the, the Catholic reply to all this, you know, Luther kept coming at them with, well, this is what the Bible says, what do you say? And they their answer to that was just, you know, shut up. And we'll, you know, don't call us, we'll call you, you know, that kind of thing. They, they really weren't interested in getting into a dialogue. And it's speaking to the question of authority. Who has the authority to speak up about what the church says and believes and teaches? And who doesn't? And essentially, Luther, as a doctor of theology, has said, it's my responsibility to speak up. And they're saying, because you're not speaking in the same page as us, on the same line, in the same uh, outline... Be quiet. Just, just be quiet. Now, interesting thing. I've been in the process of of putting together this podcast. I've done a lot of reading of of Catholic theologians, the Vatican, and so forth. Well, because the open letter to the Christian nobility and the Babylonian captivity, which we're going to uh, address in the next podcast, are both really Luther's attacks to Catholic theology that was present in the 16th century. Now, a lot of these issues that Luther was attacking weren't yet resolved. These were open items that were open to, to dialogue, at least yes. at that time. We haven't had yet the Council of Trent. Exactly. Which I think we may cover sometime in the future. We'll see how, we'll far see the, how that goes. <laughs> how that we'll goes. have to get into Martin Chemnitz then, yeah. instead of Martin Luther. And, and so, but the, the, the point here is that these, Luther was not, the only point that was heret, quote unquote heretical was that he disagreed with the Pope. That he, he, he challenged the Pope's authority. Which... 
Apart from that, all the rest of these questions were open for dialogue at that time. And so, you know, and, and uh, uh, what I'm reading from Catholic scholars is that many of them, I'm not going to say, you know, uh, not all of them, but, but many of them sort of look at this period from 1517 to 1520 as a lost opportunity to really engage in dialogue. And, and you know, but, you know, because that opportunity was lost, you know, we've sort of... I think that's important on. to point out that 1517... Um, and it's now 2017, 500 years. There's a lot going on with the 500th year of the Reformation. October 31st, 1517 is the 500th anniversary of the posting of the 95 Theses. But there wasn't this sudden, like, shot of a cannon, October 31st, 1517, and there's now Catholics and Lutherans and Reformed, and the church is completely broken apart. Boom, all of a sudden like that. There is, over 1517 to 1520, a period of proposal, dialogue, debates, and theses going back and forth. And it's really not till the end of 1520 where there's kind of uh, a closing of the door and saying, uh, the issue is settled, uh, we're just not together on this. Yeah. And, but we're still talking <clears throat> when things are in dialogue. Yeah, and well, and the funny thing is, is that there, I, I think, you know, my read of, of, the, the history of the historical accounts and, and what was actually said during that period, it seems that Luther actually was going into that dialogue in good faith. He really did want to get into uh, an open dialogue, but his dialogue was based on the Bible. And the, yeah. and the Catholic Church's dialogue was based on, well, what this is what the Pope says. Mm -hmm. And so there was this, this sort of talking past one another, but there, you know, there was, you know, the Catholic Church never really gave, at this point, in 1517, 1520, the whole concept and infallibility of the Pope was not yet a formal Catholic doctrine either. No. That that didn't come into play until 1871 or something like this. Vatican I. Yeah, and so, so you know, all of these questions, really, by rights, were open for dialogue, but that dialogue didn't happen. So... 1517 to 1520, lost opportunity to to be able to say, how can we reform the church and build the church up on the promises of the word of God? And then things continue to ha heat up until 1520. On 1520, the, uh, the Catholic church, the Pope releases uh, Exerge Domine, <clears throat> and that's uh, the papal bull that threatened Luther with excommunication. Didn't actually excommunicate him yet, but threatened him with excommunication. And somewhat contemporary... Uh, with the Exerge Domine, Luther releases the open letter to the Christian nobility, which gave the theological argument for the Christian nobles of Germany to resist the Pope and effectively remove the Pope's ability to muster military power in Germany because the Pope had been making demands on the nobles in Germany to provide an army to fight against the Turks that are advancing on the eastern edge of the the, the, Sphere Empire, of we'll say. the Roman Empire. And, and uh, what this also did was it, it severely undercut the Pope's authority to, to have people actually come and find Luther and, and take him, arrest him. Because, you know, those, that, that same military power was not available to the Pope in Germany now, or was less available to the Pope in Germany in order to take Luther and physically force him to go to Rome. And this letter, it doesn't necessarily say to the nobles, you don't have to give military power to the Pope. What it does do is say, 
the nobles and every baptized child of God has the same authority and privilege to read the word of God as any priest, cardinal, bishop, or pope. And when trying to understand what the scriptures say, we do not need to defer to some authority. We ourselves, through the Holy Spirit, are given the privilege to read the Word of God and seek to read it in a way that brings us understanding. And so, as Luther is giving the nobles power, the power is in their ability to have a voice in the church and in their kingdoms. So, so between 1517 and 1520, Luther first tried to appeal to the Pope. That was his first shot. Second thing he tried to do well, was... that's largely what the 95 Theses that's, were. That's right, yeah. And then the second thing he tried to do was appeal to a council. When, when, that, when he started getting pushback and having all sorts of problems, he said, well, let's have a council. Let's, let's have a council where all these issues are, are discussed and resolved. And we'll explain a little bit later in the podcast what this council would look like. Um, who would be there and what could it accomplish. What, what he was proposing and mm-hmm. more specific. And the third thing that Luther did... Well, then he goes after the, he says, both of those fail. You know, now it's been three years and nothing has happened in either one of those. And so he says, okay, fine. I'm going to go to the nobility. I'm going to go to the Christian nobility, the, 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 the laity and, and, and appeal to them. And, and, and so that's what the open letter was really functionally all about. Yeah. Don't just ask for change, be the change. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It could almost be a bumper sticker. (laughs) Almost be, yeah. Uh, Except that the open letter to the Christian nobility is like 150 pages. But it could (laughs) almost be a bumper sticker. (laughs) It'd be a really long bumper sticker. (laughs) We spent a couple episodes explaining the relationship between the church and the state in the early 1500s. So to summarize that in the common understanding, the church was morally superior to the state, so the church had the moral authority to tell the state what to do. And the state had really... Only to listen to what the church said. If the church said jump, the noble should ask how high. Yeah, if it was, yeah, exactly. You know, that, and it was sort of like, you know, we have the moral authority. We're telling you what's right and wrong, and we're telling you it's right to jump. Yeah, and, yeah. and that comes to we have the moral authority to tell you Luther is wrong. And even if you read the scriptures and you agree with Luther, we've told you based on our authority, he's wrong. So. Don't read the scriptures, just listen to us. Yeah, and so what, what Luther does in the open letter uh, to the Christian nobility is he, he's, he basically says, hey, listen, you know, the, the, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church of the 1500s has built three walls. He calls it the three walls of, the, of, of Rome or yeah. the, the pontiff. And, and, you know, the, so he, he goes and he, he's looking to, to tear down those three walls. And, and in the last episode, we talked about that. We talked about how he does that. Yeah, we talked about the first wall uh, and uh, that first wall, which stated that the spiritual power is above earthly power. And at the end of that podcast, I described the incredible risk that exists when you give to the laity the ability to speak up about what the Word of God says. And we had this example of Angela Merkel coming into a church with her guns and saying, uh, you guys are preaching false doctrine, trying to bring about correction. And, you know, we're, we we get kind of afraid of having the state speak to what the church should be saying. But what Luther was saying is, we cannot create this wall that says the church gets to say what the ch- what the Bible believes and the laity should just be quiet. And instead, he says, if we tear down that wall, we find out that the nobles and the church 
both have access to what the Word of God says. Both, both of them, all of us, are baptized children of God. And in our baptism, we're a part of the priesthood of all believers. And in this royal priesthood, we all have the privilege to read God's Word and find in it the promises of God. And, and I think in the last episode, we had a, a brief discussion there about the danger, one of the dangers of that, on top of the danger of Angela Merkel coming in with, with guns a-blazing into a church and saying, You're, the, the other one is schism, schismatic. You know, the, 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 the ability for me to say, hey, I read the Bible to say this, you read the Bible to say that, time for us to part ways. Yeah, I mentioned something about Peter Speckard and how he had talked about how uh, we sometimes desire the magisterium authority of the church because it can be frustrating to just have everybody reading the word of God. It would be kind of nice if we just had a bishop, a pope, a pastor who just said, this is what the word of God says on this, move on. Um, and instead, we, we have each person having the authority and privilege to read the Word of God. So I asked uh, Peter Speckard, I said, do you remember what you wrote about how we all desire uh, the magisterium authority of the church because we're tired of having everybody have different opinions? It'd be nice to just have someone come in and say, this is the answer. But in doing that, we would be giving up our freedom as Christians and reading the Word of God. He goes, no, I don't remember when I wrote that. <laughs> But he goes, it end sounds like something I'd say. <laughs> end of discussion. Time to move on. It said, he said, it's something I would say. But so that's how we looked at the first wall. But let's, let's, I wanted to take a moment to dive into that just, just a little bit mm -hmm. here because, because I think that is one of the big problems that Catholics, that, you know, maybe our Catholic, the Catholic listeners might, might have with Luther and with the Protestant Reformation period is that it's so schismatic. Yeah, how many denominations are there? I think there's like three or 4,000 in the U.S. alone. You drive down a street and you might f find five churches next to each other. Yeah, and, and so there's this, it, it is certainly something that is, is problematic. But I've been, yeah. uh, this is actually something I wanted to ask you about, was, you know, I, I go back to when the church was one church, prior to the, we'll call it the Great Schism, uh, between the East and Western churches. Going back to 1054. Yeah, 1054. So you go back to, let's say, 800, 700 AD, something, when we were all one church and we could all still talk together. There was a lot of variation within the church in that era, you know, where, you know, Basically, what we see to you know, and there was there was messiness in the in the church, and that's what the creeds were all about, right? I mean, that's was to say, okay, well, yeah, there you, we have a lot of a lot of different things going on here, but we have these creeds, and and we we believe in these creeds, and this is this is our you know, this is our common understanding of there were of the points faith. of unity, and then it, within each um, area of the world where there was a bishop. There was a lot of trust that if you have the Bishop of Alexandria or the Bishop of Rome or the Bishop of Constantinople, that that bishop would get to say what is being taught in his area. And the Bishop of Alexandria couldn't tell the Bishop of Constantinople, here's what you should be teaching, nor the other way around. There was a lot of trust uh, between them. And when the trust broke down, then there'd be letters and controversy and excommunications and things like that. Um, and eventually a council. And, and eventually a council. But it largely worked in each bishop would have the responsibility for what would be taught in his area. And the reason I wanted to go into this just briefly was, you know, the, the messiness we deal with today, the schisms that we deal with today, is in some ways very... it. it it better it reflects not well but it reflects 
uh, some of that messiness of the early yes. church. In the early church, the messiness was allowed to just kind of slide in those areas. Uh, not slide as in we let it slide, but th- there'd be b- this crossover where we say, all right, there's some differences, but together we know Jesus. Yeah. And I think now those differences, rather than being allowed to exist in the same space, uh, we just incorporate a new church body. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's, you know, but, but, you know, when, when you, when you mentioned the, uh, uh, the, the whole point of, you know, the, that we want a magisterium, we want to be told what to believe. It's, we just want a simple answer. We want a simple answer, but, but the Holy Spirit isn't simple. The Holy Spirit doesn't work simply. The Holy Spirit works through men, which yeah. is inherently a messy way of doing things, but that's how God chooses to do it. Well, and I experienced this as a pastor when someone from another congregation is coming to St. Paul and they tell me about what their pastor says or does, and they're looking immediately for me to affirm them and how they're right and their pastor is wrong. And I'm usually pretty cautious in doing that because I don't know the context or the circumstances or even exactly what that pastor has said. I just know what they're telling me that pastor said. Yeah, yeah. I guess what I'm trying to get at is that, you know, just sort of, I've given a lot of thought to this idea of the magisterium and how we want the magisterium and how we want a clean answer. Yeah. And, and, but the, the Holy Spirit has never provided, uh, it's never been that clean. It's always I think been... the best thing we can do is pray with Jesus from John chapter 17, his high priestly prayer that, uh, as he prays to the father, that the church would be one, even as he and the father are one. Uh, we should always zealously seek after unity. And I think those pastors or laity who celebrate division and celebrate difference and uh, rejoice how we're not like those people, I think they need to take a pause. And I find myself doing this and, and avoid my triumphalistic, I'm better than you, and just say, how can we be together one in Christ? But So this is the challenge. You take down that wall yeah. uh, between the church and the laity and say that together we read the Word of God with the same authority because the Holy Spirit is, in fact, the authority that gets to say what the Scriptures say, not the Pope or not the priest. And when I read the Scriptures and when you read the Scriptures, Mike, neither of us have uh, an authority based on our office. Our authority is that the Holy Spirit is present with us. And so that's the first wall. Today we're going to cover the rest of the open letter. Now, the, the open letter has, has three parts. The first part was the, the attack on the three walls of the Romanists, which I think we pretty much covered mostly in the, the last episode. The second part is a listing of the reforms that Luther felt should be instituted. Um, and so the, the, we're going to cover the other two walls, I think, um, aren't we? I, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yes. but we're, we're, so here's the thing that Luther does. He has a very easy way to understand. Uh, gives you that word image of three walls. We covered the first wall in the last episode, right? Where the and that's that's the critical wall that elevated the laity, nobles and commoner alike, to be equal in God's eyes by virtue of our baptism uh, to to any priest or pope. Now, so then. We've reviewed Luther's position on the first wall. All Christians are equal before God by virtue of our baptism. Uh, We all have just different jobs to do. The Pope has his job. The nobles have their jobs. The merchants have their jobs. All the jobs are needed to have a functioning church and society. But when one person is uh, vacating their responsibilities, there is uh, a challenge to the rest of society to fill in that space. So if the Pope is not correctly teaching God's word then the nobles have a responsibility, though it may not be their primary vocation, 
to reestablish God's word. Now, once he establishes this, Luther says that everybody has a right to bring forward their thoughts on the scriptures. Now, to, re- to, to back up his, his stance there, he references uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 14.30, where Paul says, If something better is revealed to anyone, though he is already sitting and listening in God's word, then the one who is speaking shall hold his peace and give place. Which is, I mean... I mean if okay. I'm in a Bible study, Mike, and I'm... I'm telling you what first Peter chapter two, verse 15 says, and you um, are there as a lay person in the Bible study and, and you really have something strong to say, and it's better than what I'm saying, even though I'm the pastor leading the Bible study, I should be quiet a little bit and listen to what you have to say. How, how, how's a pastor take that? I mean, that's, 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 I would say that when I lead Bible study, I much more uh, appreciate it when there's a, a, a lively exchange of ideas. And I'm not just there in the front of the room telling everybody what this passage says. But that there's this give and take. There's this reaction. There's the, I thought it said this. Or when someone else says, oh, I thought it said this. I, and I don't like it when it just leaves as everybody has their own opinion. But I do like it when, I think, and this is the advantage of, say, a Bible study versus me preaching. But that in a Bible study room, there is, I think, the authority in each person present to say what this scripture says and not just to say, well, there's the pastor in front. He must have all the answers, so I have to be quiet and listen to him. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's actually, you know, as, as a laity sitting in the Bible study, you know, it, it is a, when, 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 you, when, when the pastor says something and I say something, well, what about looking at it from this way? And then the pastor disagrees with me and says, well, no, you need to, it's like, oh, whoa, 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 okay, I'm yeah, wrong, I'm wrong. That I'm can wrong. be hard. Yeah, you know, it's, it's. Um, well, and it's happened where I had typed up a Bible study and I made a scripture reference and I read the scripture reference and it's been a couple weeks since I've typed it up and I'm trying to figure out how this scripture reference that I typed two weeks ago supports my point. And I'm looking at it, and I'm just spinning wheels right here. I can't make any sense of how this scripture passage, which turns out to be a typo, supports my point. <laughs> okay. And so I remember one time someone raised their hand and says, I think you just have the wrong passage there. Is that a typo? I'm like, after like five minutes of me fumbling, trying to figure out how this passage that I put in there supports my point in the Bible study. I go, yeah, I think you're right. So, so they had something better to say. They did have something better to say. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, that makes sense. So but uh, then... Martin Luther references John 6.45, where Christ says, all will be taught by God. And so if you say something about the scriptures and I say something about the scriptures, what we're really reminding each of ourselves is that we're being taught by God through the word. And there's only one teaching. God doesn't have, doesn't speak in forked tongue. Well, and this is where you think about if everybody has the authority to read the scripture, that means that there's this great schism and, and things, but it's not intended to be that way. Luther intended, if we all read the scriptures and we all speak to what we hear being said in the scriptures, we will get to this one reading. So, so inherent in that is a, a humility as we, as we read the scriptures. And this is one of the things that, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for pastors because, you know, as, as a professional, they're handling the word of God, which is dangerous work in my eyes. Yeah, you know, and, and so I, I look at I, I look at that, and and you know, they, they, there needs to be this humility in handling the word of God. You, you need yeah. to recognize that this is this is the very word of God we're talking about here. Well, and if you have a pastor who comes up with a, a reading of Scripture that no one else has ever spoken on, you know, sometimes preaching every week, someone's looking for some hook, some something, and he starts preaching on it, and you go, 
No one has ever said anything about this passage quite like that. I think that pastor should be kind of humble and say, you know, maybe I might be wrong. Yeah. Maybe. But on the other end, maybe he's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, there's, there's an inherent humility. But, yeah. but, but Luther assumes an inherent no, humility as we walk into the, the scriptures and into, as we walk into these dialogue with yeah. one another. And he's uh, asking the, the Pope to have that humility. He's asking everybody who reads the scripture to read the scripture uh, and see this truth of the scriptures, not because it's true, because I say it's true. But because that's what God's word is teaching, and, and I would say, you know, going, you know, going back to that brief discussion that we had on schism, um, you know, that's probably the problem that that is the biggest problem with with uh, with schism, with yeah. the schismatic attitude that where there's a separation and division, um, and you know, I've gone to some church conventions where there will be a vote on what the scriptures say about something, and there will be kind of a reminder that we are not deciding what is true and false by this vote. We are just uh, attaching our convention to this idea. I mean, just the notion that one could vote doctrine is is it, tough. Yeah, that's that's a, yeah, that doesn't quite wash. So anyway, uh, the, the then Luke, he uses the Apostles' Creed. Yep, and it, where he's uh, he proclaimed where in the Apostles' Creed it's proclaimed, "I believe in one holy Christian Church." Um, for others, uh, translations, you could say, I believe in one Catholic, holy Catholic church. Uh, it's not when Lutherans often say, I believe in one holy Christian church. They're not trying to avoid using the C word. Yeah. It, it, it's somewhat of a heritage from in 16th century Germany. Uh, when the Apostles' Creed was read in German and spoken in German, there wasn't a German word for Catholic. Oh, really? Catholic. Uh, so they would say Christian instead. Okay. Okay. And so having... In the Apostles' Creed, Christian instead of Catholic was existing even before the Reformation in Germany. So, so basically, what Luther of course saying, we've kept it now, so we don't have to say the c word. But. <laughs> so, so, but but what Luther's saying is basically that there's one one holy Christian church. There's one teaching, and that we all have to sort of work together. Yeah, to he's find. not advocating this individualistic reading of Scripture. You might have been at a Bible study where. Uh, you know, someone reads the passage, then the uh, moderator of the Bible study, uh, I won't even call him a leader or a teacher, but the moderator will then ask, well, what does this passage mean to you? That's not Luther's intent. And, and also, Luther is by, by saying that there is not one person you know, there's not one person who decides what how to be. You know, he's, he's going up against the Pope. It's right? not that there's many interpretations, nor is there one person who has the authority to read it. There is. Uh, it's 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 inherently a dialogue. It's inherently a, a humble dialogue amongst Christians to find out what this actually means. Yeah. So the scriptures should be read in community, where in every community there can be an open dialogue on the meaning of scripture, and we trust and rely on the Holy Spirit to lead us in that study of the Word. Uh, Luther doesn't come out and say it in the open letter, but he assumes that this discussion would remain within the boundaries of the established teaching of the church. He will often, uh, when teaching uh, Christian doctrine, will support it from the Bible, but then he will support it with lengthy quotes from the early church fathers as well to show that his teaching is not... Um, divorced from the established teaching of the church. He wants to show his unity. And this has been the Lutheran practice for Philip Melanchthon as well. When he writes the Augsburg Confession, he'll use quotes from the early church fathers. Yeah, the, 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 Lutheran, the Lutheran tradition is to work very hard to make sure that we are always in the mainstream 
of the of this great I'll say the great stream of of Christian thought going back to the apostles. Now the authority of the church to speak isn't from one person to the next or a laying on of hands. It's that we are all in progression going back to the same scripture. Now now Scott Hendricks uh, has a book um, Martin Luther Visionary Reformer and he summarized the attack on the second wall in this way. He says. If all Christians were equally spiritual, then any Christian with a better understanding of Scripture should be given preference over a pope. That's that's pretty scandalous stuff in yep. 1520. And so that was the, the second wall, is just that we should all be humble enough to hear the voice of someone else in the discussion. And Which now, is tough even today. Yes. And I, I have, when taking college classes, I remember back in college, I always appreciated that that dialogue of seven people around a seminar room uh, talking about Brothers Karamasov or something like that. And, but it was hard at times because sometimes I just wanted the teacher to come out and say, this is what it means. Uh, to have that patience for the dialogue to take place instead of having the teacher just say, uh, here's the answer to number one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let, let's get into the third wall. So the third wall is that that only a pope can call a council. And that's the wall that he's tearing down. Yeah, that's the, that, the so the first wall was that the the spiritual elite that there's such a thing as spiritual elite who have the moral authority to tell the state what to do. Yep. First that, wall. That was the first wall. Second wall is that only the pope can read the scriptures. Yep. Or on the uh, tearing down that wall is that we all have the opportunity to read the scriptures. And now the third wall is that only the Pope can call a council. So a council is not like a church council that is at your local congregation that has a president, a vice president, a treasurer, and the heads of the committees. The council that Luther is talking about is the gathering of all of the bishops and cardinals to address uh, a particular issue. To, to come up with what is correct teaching. Yeah, so a council, think of a council as there's some new heresy or there's some new trouble that is not explicitly and uh, very clearly talked about in Scripture. And so you need to bring together the church to handle this new conflict and then help reconcile this conflict with what the Scriptures say. Uh, one of the famous councils would be the Council of Nicaea. Uh, 325 AD. 325 AD, Emperor Constantine is seeking unity in the church. There is this uh, man named Arius who is preaching that Jesus is not divine and human, uh, but that he is kind of subdivine. And uh, it is bringing division to the church. The emperor wants unity in the Christian church because this is going to be about how he's going to unify the Roman Empire. And so they meet in Nicaea. And uh, they come to the confession that Jesus Christ is of the very same substance as the Father. So that is where the Nicene Creed comes from. It comes through uh, that, and then there's another council in Constantinople. That So sometimes you could call it the Nicene-Constantinople Creed. And then there is another council at Chalcedon to describe the, the nature of Christ and the human and divine nature. But uh, So in the early church, there would be these councils to try to address new issues with the truth of Scripture. But the critical point here is that that specific council, which is probably one of the great councils of Christian history, was called by, by Constantine. Mm -hmm. It was called by the emperor, not by the pope, not by the bishop of Rome. 
It was called by the emperor. So, so what yeah. Luther is saying, he's referencing this, and he says, hey, listen, you know, the, the, for example, the, the Council of Nicaea was called by the emperor. There's no, at no point, history, we'll say, history proclaims that you don't have to be the pope to, to call a council. Yeah, in fact, the early councils weren't called by the pope because the pope wasn't seen as uh, higher than any of the other bishops. He was the Bishop of Rome. And, and he then, wasn't the Pope. He was the, just the Bishop of Rome. Another example would be Acts chapter 15. There is the Apostolic Council in Jerusalem to try to figure out what to do with Gentiles. Do Gentiles have to convert to Judaism before they become believers in Jesus Christ? There is a, a question here. So the apostles and the elders, not Peter or James or just one person alone, as a community, they say, we need to get together on this. Yeah. So there's there, there's the, both a biblical example and then a historical example that Luther throws out there to say that, you know, that, that and this, this third wall really comes down pretty quickly. Well, so there, why does Luther call for a council is there was in the Middle Ages a conciliary movement. Um, and the conciliary movement was this notion that there could come about correction when the Pope or any action of the church is veering too far off into the wrong direction. A council would be called. You'd gather together the bishops and cardinals of the church, and they would redirect uh, the church back into the right path. And and so in, in this era, 1520, the, the Pope had the power to, to stop that council. He was claiming the unique authority to call the council. And Luther is saying that anybody has the right to be able to say, it's time for a council. And up until the very end of Luther's life, they are still awaiting for a council. The small called articles in 1536 and 1537 are all about getting ready for the Council of Mantua. That never happens. Okay. Finally, the council is called. It's called the Council of Trent. And that happens after Luther has died. And none of the Lutherans are invited. Okay. But okay. the call for a council is really the call for reform. And now, if the Pope is the only one who has the authority to call for reform... He's never going to call for reform. <laughs> yeah. If the Pope is the one who needs to be reformed, guess what? <laughs> He's not calling for it. So, okay, so so those are the three walls, and, and that's how Luther tears them down. And so that's the first part to open letter to the Christian nobility. It is time for a beer break. Okay, and today's beer is, uh, actually, it's a request from a listener in New York who wrote us and said that they wanted us to feature uh, Founders Curmudgeon Ale. Now, I've had other beers from Founders, but I haven't had this Curmudgeon Ale before. It's an old ale brewed with molasses and oak aged. Now, he, our, our listener says basically, hey, he says, I didn't take to it at first, but after a few tries, I have come to, around to naming it one of my top beers out there today. So I actually, I'm, I, I like it. I, so I, my I'm, boys, you know, I, I'll have craft beer at home. Yeah. And Craft beer always has a story on the label. Oh, you yeah. Know, if I have Budweiser in the house, they'll say, what's the story? I'm like, there's no story. It's just Budweiser. Yeah. But so on the bottle for this, it says, think classic seafaring ports, local pubs, and weathered old fishermen. This old ale is brewed with molasses and an insane focus on the malt bill. Think old aged. The result is a rich, malty delight that's deceptively smooth and drinkable. It also happens to be 9.8% by alcohol volume. Holy cow. Well, 
We'll have to be careful with this one. Uh, so, you know, founders, this is actually the second or third time we've had. I, what I'm trying to do, or what we're trying to do, is feature a different brewery, not just a different beer, but a different brewery. Uh, there are many, many breweries all through here in Michigan, and uh, that we can feature. So, yeah. but founders, you know, the, the, partly because it's such a good brew, and partly because we have a, a listener who requested it, uh, made the the list uh, for a second a second shot. I think they were uh, the second or third one that we had way back when. Um, and I think the the idea of the founders uh, brewery is that you've got a group of people that want to, uh, as beer enthusiasts, brew a beer that they would like to drink not just one that would sell a lot but what would they like and so they're going to be complex they're often uh very bold and uh aromatic and bigger body tons of flavor uh you will not find a founder's beer that is just um uh yellow water no no i i was actually i did a little more research on founders i was digging around uh trying to find out more about them and I, originally, they 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 all had day jobs. They quit their day jobs. They 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 basically threw everything they had into this brewery. They started brewing beer. They brewed middle of the road beers, and it wasn't selling. They were ready to go bankrupt. And and they finally decided, you know what? We're gonna, you know, let's let's go for broke. And they 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 started brewing these 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 strong beers that they and these these flavorful beers that they enjoy. And their business took off, and and so you know to this day, it's they when you go on their website, they they have this you know no regrets sort of attitude of hey listen you know if you're going to do something, do it with everything you got, and that's sort of the the the, the founders brewery. And I'm mantra. not sure how much longer they can be called a craft brewery because they're the 17th largest uh, bre- craft brewery based on sales and volume, and their um, sessions IPA now is. is national I that think. that all day ipa that yeah you know, that that one uh, that's what we had i think in episode three or something i mean that was a it was a that's actually one of my go-to beers uh, yeah when I'm, when I'm just sort of you know it's it's a great beer really enjoy that one and and um uh, this this one's this one's pretty good too i, yeah. I think this one it's, might... it's different than the sessions is very citrusy very summery yeah uh, i think of this beer as like a um after dinner Guys in a, a wooden oaken library uh, solving the problems of the world, <laughs> or talking theology, or sitting here and talking <laughs> theology with Grace on tap. Okay, well, so now the open letter to the Christian nobility uh, has these three walls, a great word image. Luther often writes with great, uh, I think, structure that makes it easy for a reader to build on his argument. Yeah, um, I, and then he often then adds a little bit extra. Yeah. Um, it's almost like Steve Jobs and Apple. There's one more thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Luther goes on after the three walls and he describes the reforms for the church. And in the beginning of this podcast, we talked about how the open letter to the Christian nobility emboldened Frederick the Wise and the rest of Germany to stand up with Luther because Luther addresses reforms that lots of people want. And so he has this big theology argument, and then he addresses kind of the everyday stuff that with your eyes you would notice. Yeah, and that's, like we've mentioned in this podcast a few times before, that's where people really get interested. And, you know, you hear, and even to this day, people yes. get into theological discussions, blah, 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 I don't really care. But when you... You when change you, the color of the carpet, I'm, I'm listening. <laughs> that's right. Now, when those, when those ideas 
come down to the rubber hits the road and it means something. When it's really going to change what we experience on a Sunday morning, then it is noticed. So here's some examples of the reforms about the church's handling of money and property. He says, quote, It is horrible and shocking to see the head of Christendom who boasts that he is the vicar of Christ and successor of St. Peter going about in such a way a worldly and ostentatious style that neither king nor emperor can equal or approach him. Okay, here's another one. My advice is to make fewer cardinals or to let the Pope support them at his own expense. Twelve of them should be enough, and each of them might have an income of a thousand gilden. Now, let's put that in a little context. What's so, two thousand seventeen dollars. Luther saying the cardinals should be paid about one hundred fifty thousand per year. Now, at the Council of Constance, which the, had been about a hundred years before Luther. Now, what they suggested at that time was that cardinals be paid in twenty seventeen dollars between four hundred and fifty and six hundred thousand dollars a year. So. That's pretty good coin. That's yes. pretty good coin. And I I know even in the Lutheran Church, there's conversation about how much executives in the district and synod level should get paid. And uh, there is uh, some disagreements. I, I know that uh, I read one person who said that the the head of the synod should be paid no more than any other pastor should be paid. And then, so there was an answer about how there is a personnel committee and they just look at what other nonprofits are paid. Okay. Heads of nonprofits. I'm like, but he's a pastor. Um, now, part of this uh, reform is also looking at uh, a document called the Donation of Constantine. It's a document that is purported to have given the Pope control over Rome, now, the uh, middle part of Italy, and the islands of the sea. Now, that's that's a lot of land. Like we mentioned in a previous one, when w- this middle of Italy, if you if you picture. The, the Italy as being a boot that's going from about the ankle of the boot up to about the kneecap about above the kneecap yes it's it's a it's a huge huge piece of land and the pope was claiming worldly authority over this land uh be able to tax gain income from it uh leverage the armies of this area and it turns out that this document the donation of constantine was a forgery from the 700s. In 1440, an Italian humanist uh, named Laurentius Valla exposed it as a forgery. Uh, But the Roman Catholic Church was able to kind of bury this work, put it on the back page of the newspaper sort of thing. And until 1517, when Ulrich von Hutten republished it. In German. In German. And now Luther has read this. And just before he published the open letter, he's reading about how the donation of Constantine is not a real document. Yeah. Now, the just to Constantine, again, we just referenced Emperor him. of Rome in the 4th century. He is the first emperor to have legitimized uh, Christian worship in Rome. Yeah, and so supposedly the, 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 uh, this document um, gives, uh, this donation of Constantine was supposedly where Constantine, the emperor, gave all this land to the Pope, to the, po- to the Bishop of Rome. Well, and, and Constantine... The idea would have done this because he was moving the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome to Constantinople, uh, which wasn't called Constantinople until he said, let's call it that. Yeah. But uh, what is it called now? Uh, Constantinople is, uh, it was Byzantium, it was Constantinople. Oh, uh, oh my! All right, so those of us we just suddenly forgot our Turkish geography. <laughs> uh, but so, so, anyways, the idea is Constantine doesn't need 
Italy anymore, so he's going to give it to the Pope. Okay. Now, the Pope should reject this claim over the land Luther proposes, and he should focus on issues of faith. Having the Pope attached to the worldly authority of this land is causing um, a loss of focus. Okay. And now, so he goes through all these reforms about how the church handles money and property. And when the church handles money and property, it makes it harder for them to have a focus. Istanbul. Istanbul. Now, oh, I told you what Sprocket had a song. Istanbul, Constantinople. (laughs) All right. I should have remembered that. So Luther goes through all these discussions on how the church handles money and property. Then he moves on to pedestrian religious issues. Yeah, and so at the beginning I said that there were three sections. There's the first section where he talks about the three walls of the Romanists. The second one is where he goes into... How they handle money and property. Money and property. And then the third section is this pedestrian type stuff. At least that's one way to well. Interesting, you say pedestrian because at the root of the word pedestrian is foot. <laughs> and, and the first thing he the worries, first thing Luther says is nobody should kiss the Pope's feet. And, and that is, and what Luther says here is it is unchristian indeed, an anti-Christian thing for a poor and sinful man to let his feet be kissed by one who is a hundred times better than himself. And, and, you know, what he references there is that Christ washed the feet of the apostles. He didn't ask the the apostles to kiss his feet. He washed their feet. Now, today, uh, in our modern times, the church has changed. Uh, Pope Francis, uh, notably, uh, on uh, Holy Thursday a couple years ago, uh, not only washed the feet of uh, children and others in his church, but wash the feet of a, a Muslim refugee in Italy. So, you know, there are some physical changes that do happen from the 16th century to the 21st century. And that is one of the areas, you know, as I look at the modern Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church, there are a lot of the reforms. I'm surprised at the number of reforms that have been implemented uh, that align with Luther's suggestions from from the, these documents of yeah. you know of the early 1500s. Another thing he takes issue with is the Pope being given communion while he sits down. Now let, let's sort of draw. Let's get a picture in people's heads what it's like to get the Pope communion in 1520. <sighs> At least what I understand, and it's he sits there. Okay, he's sitting on his throne. And the a bishop or a cardinal comes and gives him communion while bowed down while and bowed bended down. on his knees. And I I think that there's like a um he's not even allowed the the bishop or cardinal is not even allowed to touch the commun the the communion. It's he, on a plate it's on being a, served by a pole towards yeah, but, him. And the the pope is sitting there, you know, and the this pole comes and, and the pope you know just barely reaches forward and, and grabs it off the and you know it's like you know. Hard to imagine, you know, a, a more uh, unhumble, yes. <laughs> a more arrogant. Uh, so Luther writes, as though the holy sacrament were not worthy enough for the Pope, a poor stinking sinner, to rise and to show respect to his God. Now, as a pastor, I will bring communion to a shut-in in the pews, sitting down. The reason they're sitting down is not because they're so royal and noble of privilege that they don't have to stand up. They, they're they not able to stand up by their health. Yeah. If yeah. the Pope was sitting down he because he was sick and, and was injured, that'd be one thing. But 
imagine a scene in a cathedral where everybody is walking and standing to receive communion and kneeling down except for the Pope who is sitting and having it brought to him. Eventually, also, Luther gets into some pretty big religious reforms now, moving on into this open letter to the Christian nobility. Yeah, he starts talking about monastic reforms, changing the monastic orders, which is, I mean, that's a big, big deal. Well, so what would happen is you would have boys uh, and and then women in the nunneries, they would be brought as little children um, and being taken care of. Uh, by the monastic order, and the vows would be taken for them even before they had understanding of what vows they would be taken. And by the rest of their life, they'd be obligated to keep those vows. And if they broke their monastic vows, they could be arrested. And so Luther suggests eliminating the vows. And he's not eliminating monasticism. But he wants to do is eliminate the vows and go back to the days where anybody could become a monk or nun for as long as they wanted. He does speak about the advantage of having time of prayer and service and care for others. But when it's an act of obligation is really a requirement, uh, something you're um, almost like indentured servant towards. Yeah, you know, one of the areas that uh, as a former Catholic um, and now I'm I'm Lutheran, uh, I, I I think Luther is. Maybe there is one area that the modern Lutheran church could probably benefit from having types, you know, where, where you could go off by yourself and, and, and really retreat a retreat center where you actually sort of have a monastic lifestyle for a period of time. That's, that's something I don't see in the Lutheran church. There is in Michigan an Augustinian house that uh, is run by Lutherans. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, Not popular it's not you know huge but there is one okay so that opportunity is open okay i didn't i didn't know that now he also then talks about priests getting to marry now he spends a lot of time on that and i i, I think i don't really have a whole lot more to say because <laughs> he just tears into it yeah and, and that that the, the basically and you know I, I, this is going to be developed in other documents down the road and i i'm, I'm referencing my understanding of these 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 other documents where he goes into it in even more detail is that, you know, the, in, in when God created man and woman, he, he gave them this command to go out and populate the world. And so there's yeah. this, and there's this sexual drive that is a command of God. And that when you take a vow against that, you, you're just asking for trouble. Yeah. And so that's that's basically, you know, I don't think he gets into in that level of detail in this. And so, you know, but that's that is really what we're getting into is is having a man, a, a human vow go up against the command of God and how difficult that you're putting yourself. You're putting it, it in yourself. It is interesting that Luther does write elsewhere about how there is an abuse within the monasteries of men and boys. Um, and that some of this could be relieved if the men were allowed to marry. Okay. And so, you know, as we think about the the Catholic uh, crisis of uh, sexual abuse of children recently, um, this is not a new thing. Even there in Luther's time, they were addressing this, and Luther was proposing one way one way this could be solved is through marriage. Yeah, and that's now, you know, whether that actually deals with someone who's going to be doing child abuse isn't. I mean, what yeah, Luther's addressing. Yeah. But he talks about how the office of priest is created by God, and God does not require celibacy for that office. Now, what was interesting to me was that Luther doesn't think that bishops and popes 
shouldn't be allowed to take these kind of vows. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he, uh, his reasoning is that the office of a bishop or a pope, they're, they're human constructs, so they can organize them however they want. Yeah. You know, if they want to require bishops and popes to not be married, fine, do it what you want. But, you know, for, for the general priest, no, that, that's just, that's, that's a bridge too far. Um, the, the office of priest is created by God, according to Luther, and God does not require celibacy for that office, yeah. is Luther's thinking. And then he finishes with a section of discussing things like the followers of John Hus, uh, how to reform schools and universities. He has an attack on the Fuggers. Well, I'm, uh, I'm sure that didn't go over very well. The Fuggers are a banking family in Europe at this time. A lot of money. With a lot of money and through their loans... Um, a lot of uh, power to demand things of people or they call in the loans. And so uh, he also goes into how people should dress, which I, you know, talk about pedestrian, uh, very, very, you know, uh, the, the little stuff. And, how and he'll eating discuss habits. eating habits, yeah. Um, and then reading through this, you get a sense of the way the church was uh, reached into every aspect of life. And if we're going to speak about the reforms of the church, then we're speaking about reforms of everyday life. And, that, you know, and that's... When I was going through this, and I'm reading through these details of, oh, you should dress like this. Oh, you should eat like this. Oh, yeah. I, I, at first, it took me a minute to realize, well, you know what? The Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church in 1520, tells people what you can dress, how you can dress, how you can eat. Yes. All and so Luther felt the need to go and fill that gap. That, you know, to have people not give, be given some sort of guidance... You know, they needed to have some guidance in that way. And it does speak to how the liberty of the Christian gospel and, and the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ will change maybe the way we, we dress and the way we talk and whose feet we kiss. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not kissing your feet, Mike. <laughs> I might help wash them, but I'm not going to kiss them. So, uh, even though... Even though uh, so that, that pretty much does the... That's that's pretty much the end of the open letter to the Christian nobility. Um, even though... Let's talk about some of the reactions to this letter. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, let's see. Um, you know, the, the, the open letter to the Christian nobility made a, a huge impact. It was similar to the 95 Thesis. It spread like wildfire. First printing sold out in a couple of days. Second printing also sold out very quickly. Um, and the Roman Catholic theologians, what did they think about it? They were furious. They were absolutely furious with the open letter. And in Leipzig, Jan- Jerome Emser wrote a response against the unchristian book of Martin Luther Augustinian addressed to the German nobility. So Emser was Duke George's kind of resident theologian. And I was in Wittenberg recently and had the chance to see a German translation of the Bible that Duke George asked to be made because he didn't like Martin Luther's translation. Okay. And he had Emser do it. And Emser largely took Luther's translation and just changed a little bit. And everyone noticed uh, that Emser really didn't do that much work. Okay. (laughs) So Emser is uh, there in Leipzig and he critiques it. Uh, He went through systematically, attacked all of Luther's positions using scripture, church tradition, and the teachings of the early theologians. So there, there were a bunch of treaties that went back, treatise, treatises? Treatises, yeah. Treatises that went back and forth between Luther and Emser. Uh, they enjoyed, Emser liked making fun of Luther. Luther enjoyed making fun of Emser. Uh, Luther liked calling Emser a goat. Uh, that was because on his, on his uh, shield, on his uh, coat of arms, he, he had a goat. And, and so Luther would call him that goat Emser. Uh, so that was, 
Uh, what Luther says is, perhaps I owe my God and the world another work of folly. I shall, for the time being, become a court jester. And that was actually at the beginning of the, the open letter. The open letter. And so Emser kind of builds on that court jester and says that uh, Luther might have been in jest, but that's a pretty good assessment of who Luther was. He's yeah. just a court jester. So they're they're going back and forth, making fun of each other. Um, but and within all that, and this is actually one of the things I, I noticed when you read Luther, it's obvious that the common people are are taking an interest in this you know that that there's drama with all this theology there's you know there's personal it's almost like our modern politics you know there's 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 drama that goes back and forth with all this that keeps everybody interested and at the same time they're getting a good dose of of theological training on both the Roman Catholic side and and uh, and from Luther and the Lutheran side. Yeah. So it's, and then on a, another level, we have Johann von Staupitz, who had been uh, Luther's confessor, okay. uh, the head of the Augustinian order, and had made sure that Luther had the position teaching in Wittenberg. Now and and now the Staupitz was he he remained Catholic. He remained Catholic, and he uh, he struggled with what responsibilities he had as the head of Augustinian order uh, with Luther kind of claiming heritage inside that order. Does he have some responsibility to enforce the Edict of Rome and hand over Luther? He he doesn't quite do that. Instead, he resigns his position. But he does uh, ask Luther to write a letter to Pope Leo X that stated that Luther didn't mean to attack Leo at a personal level, but in attack the office of the Pope. But he was, yeah. So um, Luther agreed. They had that final discussion. Staupitz, Staupitz yeah. leaves, and they never see each other again. And their relationship had already been strained in 1518 at the Diet of Augsburg when Cardinal Cajetan and Luther are talking, and Cajetan is asking Luther to recant, and and Staupitz releases Luther from his vows. So their relationship already in 1518 was strained, but here in 1520, it, it ends. Yeah. Now, you know, for the rest of his life, Luther had good things to do. He never came out against Staupitz. Uh, uh, but even Staupitz though, doesn't leave the Catholic Church. He moves to Salzburg, where he is made the abbot of the, the Abbey of St. Peter there. He dies in December of 1524. Uh, but as you said, Mike, Luther always had good things to say about Staupitz. Staupitz was the guy who, when Luther was just a monk, you know, struggling with with sin and his own sin. Staupitz was the one that pointed him to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. And and it's actually the, that was the seed of what eventually became Luther's theology. And Luther always appreciated that. Now, in Luther's time frame, open letter to the Christian nobility had a tremendous impact in the boldness of the the nobles to support Luther for the responsibility that Luther gives to every baptized person to read the scriptures and to speak up when they see something in the scriptures, to bring correction to priests and others, and for the authority to call a council. But nowadays? I I had a really hard time finding any, uh, finding the a lot of information on, on the open letter. Uh, it, 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 would, it would be mentioned in, in a book about Luther. It'd be mentioned for maybe a page or two. And then that was that. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, when you consider that it had the, the kind of, to really understand the impact of the open letter 
to the Christian nobility. I think probably the closest thing is that, like, the Declaration of Independence, the kind of power, the political power, uh, and the theological power, the, the, the way it reshaped the way people thought. Yeah. You almost have to go to the Declaration of Independence. When it, when it comes in time, of course, of events where there needs to be a divorce to happen, there must be a listing of the grievances that require such a, a Declaration of Independence. And the open letter to the Christian nobility is saying, these are the walls that the Pope has put up, and these are why they must be torn down. Yeah, and, and uh, with the biggest one that really... You know, was that, hey, you know, you, you, Mr. Commoner, you are a priest. You know, you are, you are, you are a priest of God by virtue of your baptism. And that's, that was a powerful, powerful thing to, to say to a commoner or to a noble in 1520. And it made a huge impact. But to this day, there's not a whole lot written about it. It might be because it's long. We like things (laughs) short, 140 characters. Um, So let's review some important things about the open letter to the Christian nobility. It provided theological reasoning to elevate all Christians to a level of spiritual equality. We are all equals in the eyes of God through our faith in Jesus Christ. Our standing does not come about by our office. Our standing comes about through our baptism. It also provided theological reasoning for the German nobility to resist the Roman Catholic Church, which was critical for Luther and for Frederick the Wise in 1520. On the downside, it laid the foundation for thousands of Christian denominations we have in the West. Though this was not Luther's intent, he did not advocate for an individualistic, each person having their own reading of Scripture. Uh, But I think Luther imagined that Future discussions on the meaning of scripture would be like his discussions with other theologians in Wimberg. You'd have this lively table talk and you'd all leave the room with a sense of consensus. Yeah, yeah. Well, so one one final point before we start our sign-off. Um, shortly after, the open, uh, after its publication, Luther admitted that the open letter was impetuous and lacked restraint. Luther's friend John Lang, the Augustinian prior in Erfurt, I wrote to Luther to tell him that the letter could become a call to arms if it was misread. Uh, John Lang was anticipating Angela Merkel, apparently. <laughs> By the way, Angela Merkel obviously isn't doing this, but in the last podcast, I made a big argument about the danger of giving to the laity the authority to bring reform to the church. So, so uh, although Luther agreed that the that the letter had issues, he wasn't ready to back down. Um, Luther wrote, "For myself, I declare that I owe the Pope no more obedience than I owe the Antichrist." So it gives you. A, so in the next letter, we're going to be or the next episode. We're going to be covering the op, uh, the Luther's Babylonian captivity of the church, where he outlines his ideas on how the church should operate specifically in the areas of the sacraments and that's that's really getting to the 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 core the core power of the church and that's that like we've mentioned in the past the sacraments the 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 sacraments are where god touches man a good way to think of the sacraments as the core of power right there is if your money is in a bank and you want to get that money you have to go to the bank to get it okay yeah And, yeah. and if the banker has a bunch of rules for you to withdraw your money, then those rules define everything. You you may have the money, but if you don't follow the rules, you don't get the money back. And that's how somebody in 1520 looked at the sacraments. That was it was that, a transaction. It was a transaction, and and that this was these rules that the Catholic Church had set up around the sacraments were those banker rules. That's the equivalent of those banker rules that 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 choked off 
So that's going to be the next podcast. Yes, yes. So now, let's... sign off. Uh, we, we appreciate Josh Yagley uh, and the support and encouragement we received from the people at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamburg, Michigan. I uh, want to give uh, thanks to our source materials. Uh, David Whitford, uh, Luther, a guide for the perplexed. I, I, I've been using that a lot. Also, James Kittleson. And I probably should have that one first because I use that one even more. James Kittleson's Luther the Reformer is a great biography of Luther and his time and his teachings. Yeah, that was that is an excellent, excellent excellent biography and then luther's uh luther's works uh the christian society uh volume 44 that and then and that's where you'll read the open letter to the christian nobility okay and then uh wikipedia um of course always has some good things to say uh elsie singmaster uh, martin luther the story of his life and then hannah s bowers coffee shop thinking wordpress.com she had a lot of uh, good stuff that I, I wrote. If you would like to contact us, look at graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. Let us know if you would like to host a road trip. Yeah, yeah. A road trip is where we show up at a brewery near you. Uh, we invite people uh, for an evening of beer and theological discussion. And we'll we'll bring all the materials. You just got to bring the people the people <laughs> uh and then uh, if you need to if you want to check us out on the web we're at graceontap-podcast.com or catch us on facebook at grace on tap podcast uh any reviews you could post on itunes um helps increase the uh ability to find our podcast i think that's all we got thank you very much prost prost prost